refers to little ones who believe in him. And I think he is now talking about somebody other than that little child on his lap. He's talking about our brothers and sisters in Christ. We see this because he uses a different word for little ones than he did earlier. It's the same word that's used by the Apostle John in chapter 2 and verse 28 when John refers to Christians as little children. He says, and now little children abide, live in him. We are the little children Jesus is talking about. No longer infants or toddlers. We are now children walking the path of Jesus with our Lord. And we're cautioned against causing even one of these other little ones to sin. The word for sin that Jesus uses here is a, a kind of a different word than is often used for sin. It's the word scandalizo in the Greek. We get our word scandalize from it, a scandal. And it means literally to offend, to entice, to entrap, or to put a stumbling block in someone's way. You know, sometimes we don't consider how our own attitudes and actions can be the cause of a fellow Christ follower that falls into sin. That's because when we're more concerned about our personal rights than we are about how we impact others, then our priorities might be out of alignment. And we may even cause other believers to be scandalized to be trapped into sin. You know, being a citizen of the kingdom of God, it brings us great liberty, great freedom. But love dictates that you and I must also watch how we live, how we use that freedom because others are watching us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, all things are lawful for me but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. You see, Jesus wants us to know how serious it is to cause another Christian to fall into sin. Now let's look at the second half of verse 42 as Jesus continues on. He says, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. My goodness, that's some pretty serious commentary Jesus is making there. The word millstone, literally it means a donkey stone. And that was in the first century a heavy, sometimes several tons heavy, circular stone. And they would tie a donkey to it in order to turn that stone. And as the stone turned, it crushed the grain to make wheat. So the image of wearing this giant millstone necklace and then being thrown into the ocean, that would be absolutely horrifying, especially to a people like the Israelite people who really didn't like the water. The Israelites were primarily an agrarian people and they avoided the sea whenever possible. It was a scary place. And so to be tossed into it with a giant stone tied around your neck would be a horrifying proposition. In addition, they were well aware that one of the ways that the Romans sometimes carried out executions, in addition to crucifixion, was by tying heavy stones 
literally, around the necks of people and throwing them into local rivers and lakes. I can't imagine a more horrible death. And yet, Jesus said that is preferable to causing a fellow follower of Christ, a little one, to be trapped into sin. And so I want to just think with you for a few moments about a few ways that Scripture shows us how we can get our priorities out of order. We're talking about radical priorities, and we want to keep them in order, not out of order. So how do we get them out of order? Well, here's one way. First, by not practicing what we preach. By not practicing what we preach. In Matthew 23, Jesus criticized the religious leaders. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he called them. For you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Well, that's just for the Pharisees, right? He's not talking about us. But folks, guess what? When we talk like a Christian, but we live like a pagan, we are just like those religious leaders, all cleaned up on the outside, but full of trash on the inside. So that's one way. Another way we get our priorities out of order is by directly tempting someone to sin. For instance, asking someone to tell a lie for you would be an example of that. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 7. He said, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. When Jesus says, woe to someone, he's not saying, woe, slow down. He's saying, bad news. Bad news to the person who brings temptation into the life of another. That's a strong warning. And it shows that our priorities are out of order if we are causing temptation to come into the life of a brother or sister in Christ. A third way that our priorities are out of order is when we teach or promote false doctrine. We can lead people astray. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul reminds Timothy, charge certain persons, and he's talking about people in the church, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And so, friends, when we chase after speculative things in Christianity, things that really aren't in Scripture or Scripture doesn't really talk about, myths, when we follow, follow after false or questionable teachings not found in Scripture, we may lead others astray. And so we are called to measure everything that we adhere to by God's Word. That includes the television programs, the TV preachers, the radio preachers, the books that you read, just because it says Christian on the front doesn't mean that it's adhering to true doctrine. We must be careful lest our priorities get out of order and we elevate preferences and ideas and even worse, false teachings and mythologies above the reality of Christ. A fourth way that we get our priorities out of order is by not encouraging and equipping other believers. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13 is a very challenging 
verse. It says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Once again, the Hebrew writer is writing to the church. And he's saying that we have a responsibility to one another, not just on Sundays, not just when we happen to see one another, but he says, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. We have a responsibility to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then a fourth and final way, or fifth way, that we uh, get our priorities out of order is by not gathering with God's people. Listen a little later in Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24, the Hebrew writer says, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Apparently in the first century, there were Christian people that had got into the habit of not meeting together. And the Hebrew writer says, hey, let's not get into that habit. That is a bad habit. The weekly assembly is more than just a good idea. It is more than just an option in your busy schedule of the week. It is where we, as God's people, gather to encourage one another on to good works, to lift one another up, to challenge one another. And so to be with God's people on a regular basis is a way that we can maintain our priorities in order. You see, friends, I truly am my brother's and sister's keeper. And so are you. Because my attitudes and my actions do affect other followers of Christ, I must avoid causing them to sin by pursuing the radical priorities that are demonstrated and taught by Jesus. That is, by putting others ahead of myself. That's a radical priority that goes against the grain of everything in our culture today. Putting others first. Well, radical priorities then lead us to radical choices. Radical choices. Not only must I not ensnare others in sin, I have to be careful not to become entrapped in sin myself. Jesus uses the strongest of all language to communicate that it is better, he says, better to lose limbs or have an eye gouged out than it is to spend eternity in hell. These are some serious warnings from Jesus. Listen to this, verses 43 through 48. The words of Jesus, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, into the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I want you to notice a few things about this passage. First of all, the hand, the foot, and the eye. These represent the three big ways that we get entrapped in sin. 
The hand refers to our actions, what we do. The foot speaks about where we go. And the eye stands for what we look at or our desires. Jesus wants us to make the radical choice to deal severely when sin creeps into our life. Now, he's obviously using some figurative language when he says, cut it off, tear it out. We know that because you might remember back in Mark chapter 7 when we were there, Jesus taught us that the heart of the matter is the heart. Everything flows out of our heart. We could walk, whack off our hand or gouge out our eye, and we could still think of a multitude of ways to sin, couldn't we? See, Jesus is not after some physical amputation. He's after radical spiritual change in our lives. Because sin doesn't start in our hands, it starts in our hearts. That's why we are to deal with sin severely and radically and immediately. Too many of us, too many of God's people have become too cozy with sin. And so if there's a relationship that is causing you to sin, cut it off. If your feet are taking you to a place that leads you to sin, cut that activity out right now. If you want to be a serious disciple of Christ, do not dabble in sin. Jesus is telling us that there is nothing so valuable that it is worth going to hell over. I want you to notice in this text the word better. The word better is used three times to help us to see that whatever radical choices we have to make now to sever us from sin, those are better, so much better, so much more preferred than spending hell in eternity. We don't talk a lot about hell these days. But Jesus taught about it. Do you realize that Jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven during the time that he was in the earth? You can look through the Gospels and see that. In 2003, Aaron Ralston was hiking in eastern Utah. Mr. Ralston had set out to climb through the Blue John Canyon near Canyonlands National Park in southeast Utah. It was to be a one-day hike through some beautiful terrain. But as he used rock climbing gear to negotiate the narrow canyons, something unthinkable happened. Ralston pushed his arm into a crack in the canyon wall and an 800-pound boulder shifted, crushing his right hand and pinning his arm. Now, Mr. Ralston had not told anyone of his hiking plans. So he knew that no one would be searching for him, and if he didn't get free, he would die. He tried using his dull pocket knife to chip away at the boulder without success. He tried to rig a, a makeshift pulley with the ropes that he had to, to lift the boulder. That failed as well. After three days of being pinned there, under that boulder, his arm pinned. He had gone through most of the water he had with him. He had gone through all of the food that he'd brought with him. And he decided that he would have to sacrifice his arm 
in order to save his life. And so first, bending his body in order to break his wrist bone, he proceeded to use that dull pocket knife he had to amputate his arm just below the right elbow. Amazingly, he was able to remain conscious. And this 27-year-old climber applied a makeshift tourniquet on his upper arm, and then he rappelled down nearly 70 feet until he could hike for three hours until he found someone that could get help for him. I'm not sure how I handled it, Mr. Ralston, the mechanical engineer turned adventurer, said. I felt great pain, and I coped with it. I moved on. According to the sheriff's department spokesman, Mr. Ralston would have died if he had stayed there in that canyon. But he, quote, had a will to live. He had a will to live. That's an amazing story. Now, let's go back to Jesus. Jesus using figurative language, challenging his followers to make some similarly painful decisions. Cut it off for the sake of their spiritual survival. And so, friends, here's a question for you this morning. If you were faced with the same or similar dilemma as Mr. Ralston, would you be able to do what he did? To cut off your own arm? He had no other alternative. Either lose a limb or keep it and lose his life. That causes me to think and to ask this question, friends. What radical choices do you need to make in your spiritual life? What do you need to cut out immediately? What do you need to remove? What actions do you need to amputate from your life? Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul on this matter in Colossians chapter 3. Paul says, put to death, therefore, cut it off, kill it. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Christian people, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these the wrath of God is coming. That's written to the church. The great evangelist Billy Sunday was fond of this saying. He said, one reason sin flourishes is that it is treated like a cream puff instead of a rattlesnake. That's a pretty good saying, isn't it? Are you treating sin like a cream puff in your life or like a rattlesnake? In this text, Jesus uses the word hell three times. Verse 43, verse 45, and verse 47. The literal word is Gehenna. And it was an actual place outside the city walls of Jerusalem. It was used as the city garbage dump. And the background of that place is pretty gross. In ancient Israel, during the reigns of the wicked kings Ahaz and Manasseh, Little children, little Israelite children were sacrificed to the pagan god Molech. Those little children were literally burned 
alive on an altar to that pagan deity. That was what God's people were doing just outside the city walls of the holy city of Jerusalem. Those sacrifices happened in that deep ravine that came to be called Gehenna. Now the prophet Jeremiah spoke out against that child sacrifice. And finally, King Josiah put an end to it. And he turned that place of pagan worship into the city dump. The refuse of the city, including the carcasses of dead animals, the bodies of criminals, were deposited in that dump. And to keep it from overflowing, fires were started. Fires that burned continuously, that never went out because they were being fed constantly by the incoming garbage of the city of Jerusalem. So, when Jesus used the word Gehenna, hell, people thought immediately of that burning, stench-filled garbage pit not far outside the city that they lived in. Those people considered Gehenna a cursed place of judgment and impurity. And it came to serve as an illustration, a living, stinking illustration of hell. And this image, this image of the horror of hell is designed to imprint upon our minds the reality, the reality of the never-ending punishment of those who would reject Christ to those who would reject God's plan for their life. And so friends, when we radically reorder our life priorities, and when we make radical choices to change our lifestyle, we are on a path of Christ that leads away from hell. And it leads into His eternal kingdom, the kingdom of goodness and peace and hope. Those are the choices that Jesus wants us to make. That is the direction he wants us to go. But we must take some severe, severe actions at times to stay on the path. Now, before we leave this section, I want to take a look at verse 48. It's an odd little saying at the end. Jesus says, where their their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus here is quoting from Isaiah chapter 66. Let me read a little bit more from Isaiah 66. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die. Their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. That text is about God's judgment on those who would reject him. And so Jesus borrows this little phrase, and he plugs it into this severe warning about hell for any who would choose to follow him. He wants us to understand that hell is eternal and that the fire is absolutely unquenchable. It goes on forever and those in it can never be satisfied or relieved. Notice the phrase, their worm. Each worm is assigned to an owner in hell. 
That word worm, literally, it's actually the word maggot. And I want you to think about this. It might represent the internal torments of the conscience as the knowledge of our past sins gnaws away with unending remorse and guilt like maggots eating away at us. When I was in Bible college, I worked for a company that sold restaurant equipment. And sometimes we had to go and repossess restaurant equipment from people who had quit paying. And sometimes it was restaurants that had gone out of business and they just walked away and left everything. And I will never forget entering into a restaurant one time into an abandoned walk-in refrigerator. It was our job to go in there and dismantle this equipment and bring it back to the shop. But when we went into this room, it stunk. It was the middle of summer. The electricity hadn't been paid for who knows how long. It was dark. It was stinky. It was hot. And when we went into that walk-in cooler, the floor was covered with maggots. And they were feeding off the rotting meat that had been left behind as those people just walked away. It's pretty repulsive, isn't it? Well, friends, as disgusting as that image is, I want you to understand that hell is way more horrible than that. Now, we were able to kill all those maggots by mixing up bleach and water and just pouring it on them. They all died and we shoveled them out of there. But friends, the worms in hell, they never die. But here's what we must hold on to as God's people. When we are in Christ, when we make that radical choice to submit to Him as our Lord, our leader, our Savior, we experience real freedom. Freedom from the torment and the regret and the disappointments and the heartache of past sin. It's washed away. Our sin has been dealt with severely by Jesus Christ himself. He paid the price for us on the cross. And so let us remember this great promise reserved only for those who are in the kingdom. Jesus' beloved apostle John wrote these words in 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, when he said, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. When we come into Jesus, the blood of Christ covers our sins. The sins of our past, the sins of our present, and yes, friends, the sins of our future. He has done his part. Now let's do our part. Radical priorities, radical choices, these then lead to a whole new radical direction. A radical direction. If the passage you've already looked at hasn't been radical enough for you, verses 49 and 50 are among some of the more difficult to understand in the scriptures. Listen to these words from Jesus. For everyone will be salted with fire. That's an odd phrase. Salted with fire. 
Jesus says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, I want you to notice a few things here. First of all, the word salt is used six different times in this little passage, in one form or another, in three distinct ways to encourage us to continue to move in this radical direction of Jesus. By the way, on the back of your sermon outline today, our our brother Larry Bailey has written a, a great little article on being salty, and I encourage you to read that later today. Don't read it now. But let's think for a moment about this radical direction that we're moving. Direction number one, embrace suffering and sacrifice. Embrace suffering and sacrifice. That is a direction of the Christian's life. Salt and fire were key ingredients of sacrifices in the Old Testament. Remember those ancient people, they would bring their animal to the altar to sacrifice it. And one of the things that they were supposed to do, if it was to be an acceptable sacrifice, was to sprinkle it with salt before that sacrifice was put on the altar to be burned up. So when Jesus declares everyone will be salted with fire, what he's telling us as believers is that we are living sacrifices and that we will be refined through the fires of trials and sufferings. Unbelievers, on the other hand, will face the never-ending fires of hell. And so here's a question, friends. Would you rather endure the fires of hell as a lost sinner or the purifying fires of God as a living sacrifice for his glory? We are called to willingly embrace the salt of a sacrificial life. Are you willing to make sacrifices for Jesus, for his work, for his kingdom? Or are we all about ourselves? A radical direction is to be a person that embraces suffering and sacrifice. A second direction is that we are called to pursue purity. And to not become spiritually contaminated. Verse 50, Jesus adds that the salt is good. Salt is good. Now, there was a saying in the first century that went like this. The world cannot survive without salt. Salt was a precious commodity to these ancient people. In fact, the word salary comes from the Latin word salt. And Roman soldiers were sometimes paid their wages in salt. That's how valuable it was. Can you imagine going to work and at the end of the day or the end of the week, your your boss gave you a sack of Morton salt and said, good job, thanks, see you next week. We wouldn't be very impressed by that, would we? But the ancient people, they understood that salt was good. It was valuable. The world could not survive without salt. And by the way, that's where the phrase, not worth your salt, comes from. Not worth your salt. Jesus continues on, salt is good, but if it has lost its saltiness, he asks an interesting question, how can you make it salty again? 
Now, the main source for these people of salt came from the Dead Sea, also known as the Salt Sea. That coarse salt often had impurities in it. It wasn't pure white like the stuff you buy at the grocery store. Imagine pouring that out and a bunch of rocks and other junk came pouring out as you poured that into your recipe. You wouldn't be very impressed by that. And so when salt had impurities in it caused by contamination, it ultimately left the salt savorless, useless. Salt with no flavor is worthless. Well, let's make a personal application from that. How about you? Do you have any impurities that are contaminating your commitment to Christ? Contaminating your goodness? Your saltiness? Have you been compromising as a Christian and lost your savor? You see, the world cannot survive without the salt of the goodness of God's people. That is our calling to bring the goodness, the saltiness of Jesus into the world. A third direction we're called, and that is to intentionally influence those who are lost. Look at verse 50 as it ends. Jesus says, have salt in yourselves. Now this is what's called a present imperative. In other words, that's the language of an ongoing command. Meaning, Christ followers are called to be constantly evaluating the amount of influence we are having on the world around us. Have salt in your life. Have it. Keep having it. Keep using it. And it's not an option. It's an imperative. We are to constantly evaluate how are we having an influence. Salt serves as a condiment. It serves as a preservative, it serves as a flavoring, and it serves as an antiseptic. And so friends, we are called to live salty lives. Not just called, but commanded by our Lord. What does salt do? It makes people thirsty. And so think about it this way. Our job is to make people thirsty for Jesus. But salt doesn't do any good if it doesn't come in contact with that which needs seasoning, does it? Far too many of us keep our salt in our shaker instead of sprinkling it around in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, on our campuses. Are you regularly looking for ways to intentionally influence people who don't know Jesus? Well, Jesus closes his teaching with a final radical direction, and that is for us to be at peace with one another. Remember, he's talking about how we interact with the other little children of the kingdom of God. And he says, be at peace with one another. This completes the thought that was raised, remember earlier in the passage, last week and the week before when we talked about uh, the disciples, how they were arguing, who's the greatest, who has the most personal status, who's part of the group of superiority. There wasn't much peace in that kind of attitude. Friends, if we aren't at peace with one another, if we're not at peace with one another, we won't be able to offer the peace of God to those who are at war with God. 
who so desperately need Jesus. We mentioned that Oroville Dam as we began. Now that dam didn't just start to leak one day. It had been neglected for a long time. It had been slowly eroding for years, causing cracks and holes in the spillway before it finally burst. How about you? Do you have any spiritual erosion going on in your life? Have you been compromising? Have you been coasting? Heading in the wrong direction? Have you lost your saltiness? I want to challenge you to make a radical choice starting today. Starting right now by reordering your priorities. Making the hard choices necessary to cut out the garbage so that you can pursue all that he has for you. I want to invite you to join me in reading this passage of scripture that's going to be on the screen in just a moment. This is an exhortation from the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians. It's almost the very last words of his letter. And I want us to make this a prayer today. So I'm going to ask you to stand right now. We're going to read this prayer together. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. And so today... I want to say to you, go in peace. Be salt. Travel in the direction of Jesus. We're going to sing this final song, but before we do, I just want to make sure that you know if you've not given your life to Jesus, or if you're struggling in some way, and you want to learn how Jesus can help you in that struggle, Please don't leave this building today before you speak to someone that can help you to answer those spiritual questions you might have. I'm going to be by the front door. You can ask the person that you're sitting near. You can ask somebody, help me to know more about what it means to be a person of salt in this world. Let's sing that final song, Kathy. to the Lord.